you're new with us, we're working our way through uh, 1 Corinthians verse by verse. We've made it here to uh, chapter 10, and um, the book is divided in uh, various sections. Paul's uh, responding to different concerns. The first four chapters, he talks about divisions in the church. Chapters 5 to 7, he talks about litigation, sexual purity, singleness, and marriage. Uh, and then chapters 8 to 10, where we're at today, he's talking about idolatry. Chapters 11 to 14 will be about problems in corporate worship. And then chapter 15 uh, is about the resurrection. And so we come today to this text, as, uh, which is a great word for us, about, uh, it's especially a word to the spiritually overconfident. Take heed lest we fall. Let's have a, a prayer and we'll jump in together. Father, thank you for your word. We don't study the Bible to make our heads fat, but our hearts right. And we pray that now, through your spirit, you would come and incline our heart to your word. Come and change us from one degree of glory to another. Come and show us our Christ, uh, that we may be satisfied in him. And we pray this in his good name. Amen. Many people have great starts but failed finishes. Some of our sports teams have great starts and failed finishes, like the Detroit Lions in the conference championship this year. Really, really impressive first half performance, but the second half not so great. The lions were kind of like some of the kings of Israel that started well and ended up dying of leprosy. Uh, that was the uh, sad story of King Uzziah, who reigned for 52 years in Israel. He was a good king. And then we read in 2 Chronicles 26, 16, when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. Great start, failed finish. He tried to burn incense in the temple, which he wasn't allowed to do, and the Lord struck him with leprosy. His God-given success led him to presumption rather than humility and eventually to his own destruction. Now Paul, in the previous paragraph, has just talked about his own self-discipline and how he likens his Christian life to a race and that he disciplines his body so that he would not be disqualified. And he has that same thing in mind here in chapter 10 as he turns his attention away from himself now to the Corinthians and by extension to us, he wants us to finish our race strong also. We want to be those who finish well. This time he shifts his imagery from an athlete runner to Old Testament stories of failure. They're warnings to us. He wants the Corinthians to, to finish strong, and so he gives them uh, this series of, these series of instructions uh, from the Old Testament. And he probably has in mind those in Corinth who felt very confident in their own spirituality, like they were beyond being touched. They thought, some of them thought that their liberty in Christ meant that they could participate in certain pagan ceremonies and not be affected by that. And so he has to utter this warning, take heed lest you fall. I like how the message paraphrase says it. Don't be so naive and self-confident. You are not exempt. You could fall flat on your face as easily as anyone else. Forget about self-confidence. It's useless. Cultivate God confidence. We could. We could fall. We're not immune to these things, are we? And so he brings up the story of the Israelites who followed Moses out of Egypt, and they did not have the needed spiritual discipline in the wilderness. And twice he says that these things happened as examples to us. Now, the, the scriptures have a lot of warnings in them, and 1 Corinthians has a lot of warnings. And God uses both promises and warnings to preserve his people. Like in Romans 15, 4, when Paul's talking about the purpose of the Old Testament, there he says that the purpose is to give us encouragement and hope. And here, he, when he talks about the purpose of the Old Testament, he says it serves as an example or as an, a warning to us. And you find both in the scriptures. You find the needed promises, you need the needed hope, the needed encouragement, 
and you also find the sobering warnings. And this passage, though not exclusively about warnings, uh, is, is a lot, filled with a lot of warnings, and it's for our good. Now, there's a lot of text in front of us. I'd like for us to just uh, build the, our, our discussion today around three verses, uh, verse 12, verse 13, and verse 14. Everything that is said in the first 11 verses feeds into verse 12. Take heed lest you fall. 13 kind of stands as its own, on its own. It's, it's a word of promise that we can be reassured that God will provide a way of escape for us in temptation. It's a word of reassurance that our God is faithful. So take heed lest you fall. Be reassured God will provide a way of escape. And then thirdly, verse 14 goes all the way to the end of the, of the, of the section where Paul says to flee idolatry and instead feast on Christ. So take heed, take the escape, and take Christ only. First of all, take heed lest we fall. Verses 1 to 4, Paul is uh, uh, thinking through some Old Testament examples and the privileges that Israel had and that they were all under the cloud and they passed through the sea. If you're not familiar with the Bible, as, as God brought Israel out from bondage through the Red Sea, he also then provided a cloud that guided them day and night. They knew that God was with them every step of the way. Further, he says that they were baptized into Moses and into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, this is one of those places where we see typology in Scripture. Moses is a type of Christ. If you're not familiar with that term, a type is a, a person, an institution, or an event that foreshadows or symbolizes another. And here, Moses and, and all of the language here is, is pointing us to something else. It foreshadowed something else. So Paul draws this analogy of being going through the Red Sea to Christian baptism and how Moses brought Israel out from slavery, and it's Jesus who brought us out of a greater slavery, and how they were united to Moses, and they were baptized into him, as it were, and we have been baptized into Christ. We are united to Christ. Further, he notice he says that they were baptized into that cloud, into this glory cloud of God's Spirit. And we have been baptized in the Spirit. What amazing privileges they had. What even greater privileges we have. And he says they all ate of the same spiritual food. That is the Krispy Kreme that, that came from heaven. Day by day, the manna that satisfied the people. The Lord provided that. And they drank of the same spiritual rock. Paul is probably drawing a correlation between the Lord's Supper with the, the bread we eat and the, the cup that we drink. And here he draws attention to Exodus 17, when it says they all drank of the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And then strikingly, Paul says, that rock was Christ. Who gave them this water from the rock? In Exodus 17, the people are upset with Moses. That happened a lot. And they wanted to stone him. And Moses goes to God and says, what should I do? And he says in Exodus 17, 6, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. You shall strike the rock and water will come out. And Paul says that rock was a type of Christ. Just as Moses struck the rock instead of the people and water flowed to save the people, so Jesus was struck for our salvation. Instead of striking uh, us, God struck the sun. And it's interesting that after that, Moses was told not to strike the rock again. The second time this sort of thing happens, he's told to just speak to the rock. And of course, Moses disobeyed that, right? And like this rock, Jesus was stricken, but only one time. 
After that, he is to be spoken to. And when he was stricken, this water flowed from his side, John 19, as he died the death that we deserve to die. He says that rock was Christ. And then he says something very fascinating when he says that rock also followed them. Emphasizing God's continual provision of water and the continual presence of Christ among his people. Even in the Exodus, the promised Messiah was with them, nourishing them. Now, the Jews had a popular legend that was known and believed by many during Paul's day, and it was this, that the rock Moses actually struck followed them through their whole wilderness experience. And Paul may have be, may be alluding to that here, and he's saying, yes, a rock did follow Israel in the wilderness, and that rock was the Messiah, whom you waited for. He was with Israel even then. So you put it together, this Jesus was stricken for us, he satisfies us, and he's with us. Amazing privileges. But then Paul pivots in verses 5 to 10 and says, Israel fell because of their sin. And he highlights four particular sins that we must put to death if we want to finish strong. Nevertheless, in other words, despite all of these blessings, with most of them, God was not pleased. And that was an understatement by Paul. <laughs> Only Joshua and Caleb made it. Bodies were scattered across the wilderness. They didn't make it. Why? Verse 6. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. It's a desire for evil. That's why they didn't make it. He's probably alluding to Numbers 11, uh, 4 to 34, where the people are complaining about the menu. They don't like God's plan. They don't like just having manna to eat, and so God provides them with quail, and after they stuff themselves, God punishes them for their attitudes and their actions. They desire evil, Paul said. And then he gets really specific about four sins. He highlights the sin of idolatry, sexual immorality, testing Christ, and grumbling. Think through these with me for a moment, the sin of idolatry. He says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it was written, the people sat down to drink and rose up to play. Here Paul is calling to mind the incident in Exodus 32 where God's people worshipped a golden calf that they created. And he's probably bringing this up for obvious reasons. At Corinth, the problem was idolatry, and so he grabs this Old Testament analogy, this Old Testament story as an analogy. And if you're not familiar with this story, Moses goes up on the hill to get instructions for the proper worship of God, and he's up there for about 40 days, and he comes down, and the people are engaged in false worship, and they're eating and drinking. The people tell Aaron how they want to worship. And Aaron demonstrates what a leader without conviction looks like. He gives idolatrous people exactly what they want. And he says to them, these are your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, if you don't recall, how did they make this golden calf? Where did the Israelites, they had been slaves, where did they get gold from? That was from the plundering of the Egyptians. God gave them the victory, gave them the gold, and what did they do with the gold? They melted an idol and worshipped it. Sobering story, isn't it? Now, we would say probably today, I don't struggle worshiping a cow. I may eat too much cow, but I don't struggle worshiping them. But the story isn't about the, the, the cow. The story is about the human heart. When Stephen is recounting this story in Acts chapter 7, he says that in their hearts they turned to Egypt. Even though God got them out of Egypt, Egypt was still in their hearts. They hadn't gotten Egypt out of them. And if we're going to finish our race well, we must ruthlessly put to death the idols of our hearts. 
Now, idolatry is dangerous because we often don't know what's happening. It's not explicit sometimes. So we have to ask ourselves some heart questions. What is it that I daydream about? What is it that I say if I only had this? What is it that I'm looking to to give me what only Jesus can give me? You see, often people don't finish their race strong because they don't ruthlessly deal with these idols. And so we must put them to death, whether it's money or sex or power or fame or whatever. Secondly, he highlights the sin of sexual immorality. This is not the first time that Paul has talked about this subject, as you guys know. Here he draws attention back to a story in Numbers 25, 1 to 9, when he says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. This is the story where the, the men of Israel committed sexual sin with the women of Moab. And Paul points out the seriousness of their sin when he says God punished them, 23,000 fell in a single day. And if we're going to finish our race strong, we must deal with this sin as well. We must, as Paul said previously in the letter, flee from sexual immorality. As he says here, we must not indulge in it. And this is quite a challenge in our day, isn't it, because of the accessibility of sexual sin. And it's also a, a challenge, not just because of accessibility, but because of autonomy. We are told by everyone that no one has the right to tell you anything. You define morality. No one can tell you how you want, can express your sexuality. And we must fight these things. Flee sexual immorality. Build your life on God's word. Don't indulge. Adul indulge is a pleasure word, isn't it? We use that word when we're talking about, hey, I want some dark chocolate. I'm going to indulge for a moment. And when it comes to this matter, I think it's important to remember that we, we fight pleasure with a greater pleasure. We fight beauty or so-called beauty with a greater beauty, namely the beauty of Jesus and the pleasure of Jesus. We feast on Christ so that there's no room in our hearts for sin. We internalize his word day and night. I just encourage you with that. Don't be content with just a, a, a once a week sermon. God has given us his word because we need it every day. We need to feast on our Savior every day because our hungry hearts will, will be satisfied in something, right? We don't just walk around in neutral. We, we go after stuff. Like if you ever uh, went grocery shopping, starving, how much money do you spend? Like, everything looks great. It's like, man, I've always wanted some rice cakes. It's like, <laughs> no, you don't. Like, you're not craving those. You're just hungry. I'd love one of those gluten-free, taste-free rice chips, you know, some kale chips. When you, when you have a hungry heart, you will look to all sorts of things to fill it. And adultery doesn't normally start with a woman jumping out of a cake. It starts with a slow stepping away from God and His Word over time. And before you know it, it has you. He says we must flee from sexual immorality. We must flee from idolatry. We must flee from the sin of testing Christ, which is where he goes next. He says in verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, as they were destroyed by serpents. Here again, you see Paul's, what we would call high Christology, that Jesus is present in the Old Testament. He's present in the wilderness. Here, he's alluding to Numbers 21, 4 to 9. The people were impatient in their journey. So they spoke against the Lord. They spoke against Moses. And God sent snakes to punish them. If it's the passage weren't scary enough, now we're on to snakes. 
And probably Paul is bringing this up because there were some in Corinth who were reasoning, we probably can participate in these idol feasts and these pagan ceremonies. After all, none of us have died yet. There have been no consequences yet. And Paul says, you better be careful. It's a word against compromise and presumption. Now, in that same story in Numbers 21, it's also a beautiful picture of the gospel that John alludes to. Many of them died in the wilderness in this moment, but some did not, but they knew they needed forgiveness. And they go to Moses, and the Lord tells Moses to make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everybody who looks to that serpent will be healed. And John 3, uh, John alludes to this, and he says, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him has eternal life. When we're guilty of these sins, what do we do? We look to Jesus. We look to the one who was lifted up for sinners. Only Jesus can heal us. He, only he can bring this sort of restoration that we need. So if we're going to finish strong, we must flee idolatry. We must flee sexual temptation. We must not put Christ to the test. Fourthly, we must not grumble. This is a sin that's often treated too lightly, isn't it? And notice how it's put right up against sexual sin and idolatry and testing Jesus. Don't grumble. Now, it's hard to know which passage Paul has in mind here because the Israelites grumbled everywhere in, in the Old Testament. I think he probably has Numbers 16, 41 to 50 in mind where, again, they grumbled against their leaders and God killed them with a plague. Now, grumbling was an a, 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 a issue of particular point, importance for the Corinthians because they were already divided over their leaders. They were grumbling. Some saying they were of Paul. Some say they were of Apollos and so on. They questioned Paul's motives. They questioned his effectiveness. They questioned his teaching. And it's a word of warning to them. If we're going to fit in strong, we must cultivate a thankful heart, a contented heart, one in which we thank God for leaders, right? We, that we live out the spirit of Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. It's interesting that that verse follows, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. How do we do that? The first thing Paul says is, do not grumble. And he says, this is one of the ways that you will shine like stars in the world. One of the, one of the things that should separate Christians from the rest of the grumbling culture that we have is that we're a contented, thankful people. How could we not be when we've experienced something greater than the Red Sea party? We have something greater than a cloud, you know, walking us around. We've been redeemed by Jesus Christ. Our sins have been forgiven. We've been granted eternal life. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, guiding us. We have glory that is waiting on us. And so if we don't go to the gospel every day, we will go down a dark hole of murmuring and complaining and self-absorption. Yeah. Oh, but if we can put our eyes on Jesus every day, that's what we need. That's what I need. Verses 11 and 12, he says that this Israel, well, these stories, they're an example to us. They're written down, I love that he says, for our instruction. Did you know the Bible was written, you could say, for you? It's for your instruction. And if someone wrote you, your, your loved one wrote you a letter, you would want to read it. You would, someone sends you a text message, you read it. God has written a book for us. And he fills his word with promises and warnings and instruction and good news. And let me encourage you to just read it, meditate on it. Don't treat it like the comedian Nate Bargetsy treats books. When he says, I don't read any books. <laughs> And I think that matters. I believe reading is the key to smart. God's word has been written down for us. Heed the warnings, 
Trust the promises, apply the instructions, behold the Savior. That gets us into the exhortation where he says that you guys are living in an amazing period of time on whom the end of the ages has come. With the coming of Jesus, a new age has dawned. The last days have been inaugurated. One day they will be consummated. So what do we do? We take our walk with the Lord seriously. Take heed if you think you stand, lest you fall. Don't think you cannot fall. Whenever we hear a story about someone who has fallen into terrible sin, we should say, I am capable of that. Not I am above them. That's a dangerous posture. We must always be on guard. Paul tells Timothy, watch your life and watch your doctrine. And then he adds a third imperative, persist in this. Don't ever stop watching your life and your doctrine. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. How many football players have ran toward the end zone and they celebrate too soon only to fumble? <laughs> only to get tackled? Or how many coaches have been, you know, had the water poured over their head before the game was actually over and they end up losing? I know a particular team, namely the Kentucky Wildcats. In 2002, they stormed the field, were tearing down the goalpost, had doused the coach with the water cooler, and LSU threw a Hail Mary and won the game. My friends, the game isn't over. We, we, have, we, have, we have a fight on our hands. And there's never a season where we, we think that we cannot fall. Like, sexual temptation is not just a problem for teenagers or college students or young 30s. This is what C.S. Lewis said about middle-aged folks. The long, dull, monotonous years of middle-aged prosperity or middle-aged adversity are excellent campaigning weather for the devil. Middle-aged prosperity, you got some of that? Or middle-aged adversity, you got some of that? Are excellent campaigning weather for the devil. Take heed in every season. Guy told me this past week, a teenager asking an 87-year-old man in the church, at what point does sexual temptation end? And he said, well, I don't know, but it's not at age 87. <laughs> Appreciate that level of honesty. <clears throat> Guard your heart. It's the first thing he says, take heed lest you fall. Secondly, I'll move quickly now on the next couple. Be reassured God will provide a way of escape. Verse 13 kind of comes out of nowhere uh, after kind of scaring us to death with these warnings. Here comes a great promise about the faithfulness of God and that our temptation is not unique, it's common to man and that this faithful God will not let us be tempted above our ability but will also make a way of escape that we may endure it. So embrace this. This is good news for tempted Christians, tempted and tried Christians. The first thing he says to the Corinthians is your temptations are not unique. There's a real tendency in us to blame shift, to try to excuse ourselves based upon our context our situation. You can imagine the Corinthians using that logic. Well, the prostitutes are everywhere. I can't help it. The idols are everywhere. What am I going to do? And Paul is saying you cannot do that. Your temptations are not unique. They're common to humanity. Others have resisted idolatry, so can you. Others have resisted sexual immorality, so can you. It's not easy, but these temptations are common to man. Second thing he says is God is faithful. He will not desert you, Christian. He will not deny himself. And this is the great hope for long-term faithfulness. This is the great hope for finishing strong. Our faithful God is with us. 
He's true to his promises. He's constant in his love. He is not fickle and changing like the Greco-Roman gods, or non-gods, we should say. And he is faithful in this specific way. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. I take that to mean he places limits on our temptations. So because God is faithful, we can resist temptation. He will sustain us to the end, Paul opened the letter with. And he says he provides a way of escape. Because he's faithful, he gives you an exit path. So take it. C.K. Barrett said, the commentator, the way out is for those who seek it, not for those looking for the way in. So when it comes to temptation, are you looking for a way out or a way in? If you're looking for a way out, he's saying there's a way out. I remember as a young Christian how much I love verse 13. Like I became a Christian and I didn't know much at all about the Bible. And they would be like, hey man, what's your favorite verse? And I'd be like, man, I like these maps. These maps are fantastic. Like, I like to go to Galilee. That looks pretty awesome. I didn't, I, and then I, in every Christian conference, it was like, hey, let's, let's introduce ourselves to three people and tell them your favorite verse. So I, did, I realized quickly I needed some verses. And I was like, this one works, 1013. Here's one I can identify with. A young converted college student filled with temptation. And this verse offers me hope. It offers me good news. Our God is faithful. Listen to Leon Morris. God is not simply a spectator of the affairs of life. He is concerned and active. Believers can count on his help. He will always make a way out. The imagery is that of an army trapped in rugged country, which manages to escape from an impossible situation through a mountain pass. The assurance of this verse is a permanent comfort and strength to believers. Our trust is in the faithfulness of God. He will faithfully provide a way of escape. Let me add, sometimes he uses other believers to help you in that exit. Sometimes the, the way of escape is through means of human agency, an accountability partner, a friend encouraging you. And we need to be these sorts of people for one another as we fight this good fight. All of this, Paul says, that you may be able to endure it. So be encouraged, be, in, be strengthened. You don't fight on your own. We can prevail through it. Our God is faithful. Thirdly, finally, he tells the Corinthians to flee idolatry and to feast on Christ. If you're going to finish strong, he says, you have got to deal with the idolatry surrounding you, and you've got to set your eyes and your heart upon Jesus. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. You can see Paul's loving heart here. My beloved, flee from idolatry. Same word he used in back in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee sexual immorality. Remember where I said, run like Harrison Ford from all forms of sexual immorality. The same is true here for, um, for, for idolatry. And then Paul, I like how he just drops in. I speak to you as sensible people. <laughs> Judge for yourselves what I say. My words make sense if you really think about them. If you flee idolatry, you won't fall into it. If you flirt with it or take it lightly, you will. And so he, he then does a contrast. Our fellowship with Christ, verse 16 and 17 the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? This is a meal where we get to draw near to Christ. It's a meal where we remember. It's a meal where we fellowship with him. It's a meal where we feast on him. I love how the Book of Common Prayer says this regarding the table. Take and eat this remembering that Christ died for you and feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. Again, it's about feasting on Christ, having a heart filled with gratitude. We draw near to Christ. We draw near to one another in the table. 
And this is one of the ways that we flee idolatry, is that we feast on him. We find Jesus to be a superior satisfaction. We find Jesus, verse 17, who is the one bread. He's the one who unites us all into this one body. And we, we go there, and we are reminded of what Jesus has done for us, and how he's brought us together from diverse backgrounds and made us a people together. And the people represents this beautiful unity. Therefore, it would be crazy, verses 18 to 22, for you to think that you could dine with demons. As he says, consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not gods. Not God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So he's saying essentially the idols don't exist. They're not real. Zeus isn't real. Artemis is not real. But the demons are real. And when you cozy up to that sort of environment, you're offering sacrifices to demons. And that is entirely incompatible with someone who is taking the Lord's Supper. Verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Apparently in Corinth, some thought you could have both. Maybe they even thought that magically if they took the table, then that would shield them from God's displeasure at idolatry. No, says Paul. Jesus saves us, not demons. Jesus sustains us, not demons. Jesus satisfies us and not demons. You can't have both. He's doing sort of an Elijah at Mount Carmel when he says, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. Paul is saying, make the right choice. Flee from these false gods. Flee from this pagan worship and feast on Jesus. Don't, verse 22, provoke him to jealousy. And the answer to, are we stronger than he, is an obvious no. God is not mocked. Don't take sin and idolatry lightly. He is a jealous God. My friends, it's a pleasure to remind you that Jesus is better than sin. He's better than idols. We look to him to give us what only he can give us, and we look nowhere else. And to finish strong, we must flee from any kind of idolatry that arises in our hearts and feast on the pleasures of Jesus. So take heed. Take the exit. Take Christ. Take heed lest you fall. Don't be complacent in your Christian life. Don't, don't be naive. Don't be self-confident. We are in a battle until we see Jesus. Take heed. Take the exit. Our faithful God provides ways of escape for us. Let's take them, and let's feast on our Savior who satisfies us and strengthens us and now at the table, we are given another opportunity to cultivate gratitude in our hearts for the Lord Jesus, who's lived the life we couldn't live and died the death we should have died and is providing for us everlasting joy through his grace. Let's pray together and ask the Lord to write these things upon our hearts. Father, we do want to finish our course well. We pray that you would give us the needed spiritual discipline to do so. We pray that you would uh, grant us grace to... Uh, live out the truths that we've just read about in 1 Corinthians 10. Lord Jesus, we bless you. We thank you for what you have done for us. We thank you for all your promises to us. And as we prepare our hearts to take the table now, we pray that this would be a means of encouraging us to finish our race strong. We pray this in your good name. Amen.